Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti. Lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain. Sleepless nights, shallow breathing. Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a sane split. Welcome and thanks for joining me. Today I am very pleased and I might even say excited to share with you my interview with Melanie Battaglia. We have known each other for some time now and I have a profound respect for her skills as a lawyer and her compassion as a human being. She is a partner at Puran Law where she heads the firm's litigation practice. But she's no stranger to resolving issues faced by her clients through negotiation, mediation, and even arbitration. When I began thinking about an episode uh, dealing with issues at the intersection of family law and education law, Melanie immediately came to mind because she has experience in both of these areas. And I knew that she would share important information with my listeners in an accessible and human way. If you have been listening to this podcast, you know that those two things are very important to me. Melanie is truly a multifaceted person. In addition to being very competent at her job as a lawyer, she's also an avid athlete, having completed a number of marathons. I like people with broad interests. I find them inspiring and sometimes even thought-provoking. I also believe that well-rounded individuals make better lawyers because they bring to the practice of law and mediation as well fresh and potentially innovative points of view based on their experiences in other parts of their lives. Melanie is definitely one such well-rounded individual, and her compassion shines through in the work she does and also her outside interests. For example, she is the current president of the Toronto chapter of Autism Ontario, and also involved in pro bono and student mentoring programs. Before I share our interview with you, some housekeeping notes which I will try and keep brief. I have received some more positive feedback about the podcast. Thank you very much. You know who you are. Your comments are very helpful to me and propel me to keep on doing what I'm doing. 
Later this month, I will be sharing with you my interview with Shmuel Stern, who is the founder of Disclosure Clinic. This is an innovative, in fact, cutting-edge, family law limited scope service focusing on disclosure, which is an issue many family law clients, their lawyers, and family law judges throughout Ontario grapple with every single day. Shmuel is a family law lawyer who has a knack for thinking outside the box, and Disclosure Clinic is one of his latest projects. I promise you will find that interview interesting and insightful. If you are self-represented, you might consider taking a look at my new additions to my website, and that is www.separationinontario.com. These are manuals, so far two, but there are more in the works, about basic procedure in family law in Ontario. They are not legal advice, but rather tips and guides to assist you with various tasks, like, for example, bringing a motion or completing a financial statement. You might think of these, for example, as companions to the three episodes I did recently on working through a financial statement effectively and strategically. And now, here's my interview with Melanie. As you, my listeners, already know from the introduction, my guest today is the very charming and the very competent Melanie Battaglia, a family law and education law lawyer at Puran Law. These two areas of the law intersect quite frequently because, of course, when two people separate, decisions have to be made about children, both in the short term and the long term. And many such decisions involve education. I am confident Melanie is the right professional to discuss these issues with me. Melanie, welcome and thank you for joining me on Saint Split. I know, I am confident, in fact, that our dialogue today will be helpful to our listeners and that we can speak about the intersection of family and education law in an accessible, understandable way. Please tell us a bit about yourself. I would like the listeners to understand why I thought you would be the ideal professional and human being to talk with me about these two areas of the law and how they frequently intersect and interact. Thank you, AJ. I am first off very delighted to be here and I appreciate the invitation. Uh, I'm excited. This is my first podcast. So thank you very much for asking me to join you on this. These two areas of law, as you say, do um, intersect frequently. And um, in terms of my background and how I came into the education law sphere specifically, uh, it really was um, after I joined my current firm, where I, I think your your viewers know we're a firm, uh, a, a social justice uh, firm committed to working with and uh, organizations that support individuals who live with disabilities. And um, 
specifically for me personally, um, my older son lives with autism. And so when he started school uh, in the regular public education system, uh, education advocacy became a part of my world. And I quickly realized how as a family law lawyer, I was at an advantage in the education sphere. So I took it that personal piece and I brought it into my professional practice. And this firm has really allowed me to develop that area of practice. Uh, I do work a lot with young people with disabilities in education and family law matters. I will include in the episode notes the website uh, address for Melanie's firm. It is a very progressive social justice-minded and focused firm. And I truly invite my listeners to take a look at the website and the services they offer. And Melanie, thank you very much for sharing with us some personal information. I think it will help our listeners understand, perhaps if they have a child with special needs, for example, that they are not alone when they face challenges in this area, it may sound like a cliche, you're not alone, but there are parents out there who face similar challenges. And you know, Melanie is uh, someone who could possibly help navigate those two sometimes difficult areas. So my suggestion, Melanie, is that we look at our subject matter from a macro big picture perspective first. And then we can get into some of the specifics, which I'm sure will be of interest to the listeners, like access to school records and parent-teacher meetings, for example. What types of issues, what types of decisions do separated parents typically encounter? And you and I both have experience with this in our work as family law lawyers. We do. And feel free, AJ, to please jump in here if you think I'm missing something. But I tend to look at decision making from a, a family law perspective is into three main categories. We have the day to day daily decisions that need to be made for a child by the parent in whose care they are in at that time. We have major decisions, uh, which generally comprise of issues like education, which we're going to talk in more detail about today, uh, health, religious decisions, some extracurricular activities, depending on the nature of the activity. And I would say also, um, because this is where my mind does tend to go a lot for a child with special needs, um, other types of healthcare related decisions, particular therapies or other um, needs that a child has that may require more than just day-to-day decision-making by the parents. And then, of course, uh, emergency decisions. So in terms of, I'm going to, I think, focus primarily on the major decisions, the second category I referenced, because uh, that is where education lies. Um, I think as a family law lawyer and as a, a client coming to a family law lawyer, there is time that should be spent on talking to the client about their children um, and and spend a bit of that time. It's really important to try to get a sense of who their child is and what their child's needs are, whatever they may be. 
And it's because you're you're putting as a as a parent, right, of young kids, you're or you know older 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 kids, um, but you're putting your trust in a system and a client, and then potentially a judge who who doesn't know your children and they don't know your family. So. Uh, I would say spend some time there so that when you are addressing decision making and particularly education decision making, because that will come up in almost every case where there are children uh, because they go to school, uh, the, the focus in either the separation agreement or the court order really will be uh, child centered uh, because you've spent the time as both the lawyer and the client to, to talk about the kids and you, you've gone into some of that detail. I will, and I think we'll we'll talk about this in a bit, AJ. But um, the the realm of education decision making isn't just for children up to age eighteen. Of course, uh, kids uh, can be and still are often financially dependent on their parents. Well, over eighteen now, as they pursue post secondary studies and even more than one degree now. Um, the, the interesting piece here is that I think you see attention with personal care decision making that a child has uh, about their education and then contrasted with their needs still for support from their parents to pursue that education. And I think we, we deal with that a lot in the family law context. And I personally on the education side, um, particularly when I'm acting for the the young adult or the youth, they want to retain some control and autonomy over their education decision-making. And they're entitled to do that at law. And it may not accord with what mom and dad want, right? Um, but they still need the financial support. So uh, it, it's interesting. Um, these, these raise education and family law, I think, raise a lot of different and interesting issues that overlap in other areas of law. So I wanted to give our listeners an example, a practical example of what you just talked about. And and thanks for raising this point. So the public sometimes has trouble accepting that a young person over 18 can still be treated as a child for the purposes of child support. In other words, they can be entitled to continue to receive support, financial assistance from their parents. But on the other hand, they want to have a say in which college they attend or university they attend. Is that is that what you were referring to? There's there's that piece, uh, certainly. And there's also the piece where I think I personally see it more as well for um, a child who is a child over 18. They live with a disability, but it doesn't impact their capacity to make decisions like education, for example. Um, and, and so there's competing legislation even, frankly, but those, there's the, that tension there where the child um, can make decisions about their education and wants to. So yes, whether what school it is they continue at is a great example. And and yet they do still need the, the financial support from their parents to, to continue to pursue that. So I think I, I, I was talking about children that are uh, not disabled. Uh, and I understand that there's a special 
complicating set of factors when a child is disabled and cycling, circling back to what you said, I, I believe that's what you were talking about. So perhaps I threw an unnecessary wrench in your train of thought. <laughs> no, I think it's important to, to distinguish both, frankly, um, because I think the in in our family law practice, often, let's say that um, we apply the, the typicality lens, if I can call it that, to children, and we make presumptions or p- potentially um, have misconceptions about a child that lives with with a disability. And uh, I just think, again, I come back to what I said at the beginning, I think it's important to spend that time with your clients to, to find out about their kid, right, and, and uh, what their child's needs are. I recently updated my new client interview form, because I would like to know before I initially meet with the client, whether, you know, it's it's not sufficient for me to simply know what the children's names and how old they are. I would like to know a little bit more. And I'm glad to hear that I'm doing something right. You talked about, you know, truly, genuinely talking about the family and the children as unique entities. And that was my thinking when I request that information early on. I just wasn't able to verbalize it as uh, proficiently as you did. Uh, no, I think that's fantastic that you're doing that. Um, and I think it's something that we should adopt across the board uh, in our family law practice Um Particularly now, right, and this brings me to, I think, another very topical area uh, regarding education decision making, and that's enrollment in school. Uh, We're in a pandemic, and that has created a lot of, um, well, certainly a lot of more litigation in the family law context and and brought about uh, different issues, right, Uh, as we uh, were nearing upon September, this past September, and uh, were we enrolling our children in virtual learning or in class and uh, the considerations that had to be made there. So I think what you're doing is great as we continue to go through this pandemic because a child's needs may change, right? And it's important to know, is this child suitable for an online learning environment like or the virtual learning or do they have to be in class? And then from there, What are the questions that you need to ask? Well, what is it then that this child requires um, to be successful in an online learning environment or or in class, right? And and what other considerations have our courts been grappling with as they have to make these decisions where parents can't, um, you know, immunocompromised children, the child's health, if there's an immunocompromised family member, uh, can the school take the appropriate safety precautions that are are necessary? Um, If the child, again, has special needs, can they even learn it on an an online platform? Um, And I think what we're seeing from a lot of the disability advocacy organizations out there um, is they're really calling on the government to to take stock of, of how the online learning environment is not adequately supporting uh, students who have special education needs. Um, it, it's it's not. It's very challenging for a lot of these families. 
and, and students who can't sit in front of a computer unattended and, and try to learn all day. It's not possible. And that, of course, brings into play the other factors of the family, where uh, time off work, working from home, all of that, and all of these considerations. So I, I think, you know, when we're doing our intakes now with our clients or our consults, it, we do need to, to increase the questions that we ask about this particular family uh, as we kind of go through this new learning environment. And we don't really know how long it's going to, to last for. We're hopeful, but we're not sure yet. So for our listeners, uh, there has been a lot of discussion about this issue in person versus online learning uh, before the courts, uh, before family courts. And that discussion started virtually immediately after the lockdown. The point I think we also need to make is that family courts deal with each child individually. In other words, there are some patterns. And when you go to see a lawyer and you ask a question, uh, there's no no doubt that the lawyer will formulate their opinion based on what judges have said about this issue before and what the legislation says, meaning written statute law. But ultimately, the test before the court is what are the best interests of that child, that particular child with their particular unique qualities, characteristics, and needs. So that's what Melanie and I are talking about. And that's what I'm aiming for in my intake form. I ask, you know, about the kids. Do they have special needs? What are those needs? What are the challenges? What, what arrangements are made in school for those special needs? Has there been an assessment done? All these issues are important for parents to share with their lawyer. So again, I'm glad I'm doing something right. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like you're doing more than something right. Absolutely. Uh, It's great that you're doing that. And all of that information, especially now, I think, in this learning environment, is really helpful and useful for the lawyer to know. And they can decide, right, if, if it's something that needs to be raised or not. Or, or But as the parent or the client, give them the information so that they have it. Absolutely. It actually made me think of one thing we were talking about earlier in terms of letters from school. And I'm kind of jumping around here, but, you know, Schools don't like to get involved. I think I'm generalizing, but I think it's fair to say they don't like to get involved in a family law dispute. But on the other side of that, especially in this pandemic where we have different learning models, if a letter from an administrator or a staff person at the school um, will be helpful to identify what that child's learning needs are and what other supports and whatnot they need. It may be something that parents do want to consider asking the school or the the family lawyer does want to consider Um, because as long as I think it's child-focused and needs-based, it will be hopefully useful and not an abuse of a, of a process or, or an institution, so to speak, uh, if it's from that perspective. So I think what you're saying, and I want to make sure I understand this, the board would be more likely to write a letter if the question posed was, for example, what is your view based on your 
familiarity with my child's learning style? What would be uh, the the appropriate further supports for my child, as opposed to a letter which says, please confirm that on Friday, my ex attended at the school and was shouting really loudly in the parking lot, and my child ran away and hid inside the car. Uh, I mean, am I on the right track here? Yes, and I certainly don't want to speak for, and I'm not speaking for every school or board, and and we're generalizing, but yes, in my view, I think the helpful communication from the school is the former, right? It's child-focused, and it's identifying what the needs of the child are, and that may very well be relevant and necessary information that a judge may require, right? Um, Or a letter from the principal uh, or an affidavit from the principal. I have gotten those where the child does have special needs and and that has been helpful uh, as opposed to the latter where, yes, I I certainly don't think um, we want to be getting into those, boards want to be getting into those disputes. And I don't know, in my view, and you you know, I'd love to hear your view on this. I don't think it's overly helpful, frankly, on the family law side either. So uh, I would tend to leave that alone and not go that route. It, it isn't particularly helpful from my perspective. It's it's like the 20 character reference letters uh, that are sometimes attached. But ultimately, I'm sure you will agree that the decision is up to the specific lawyer, and some people find some evidence more useful than other evidence, so we don't want to step on anyone's toes. But thanks for, I'm, I'm glad we clarified the distinction between those two requests, hypothetical requests. Thank you very much for all those uh, useful comments and all that useful information, Melanie. I'm sure uh, that uh, my listeners will find it helpful. Let's get into the micro a little bit since we've covered the big picture. Maybe we can spend a bit of time on access to school records and information about the children in general and from schools specifically. Uh, This issue comes up a lot in our cases. Parents wonder if after the separation, they are entitled to see report cards, for example, to know how many times, if at all, their child missed school or was late, uh, whether their child is receiving any awards or perhaps is being assessed because their marks are dipping. There is a fair bit of misconception among the public as to who is entitled to what and why. Some people come to me to an initial meeting, for example, or a consultation and tell me they believe that if one parent has sole custody, in other words, is the sole decision maker for major decisions... The other parent does not have the right to any information about their child, information related to education, the child's report cards, their progress, their activity calendar, in, and so on. And by the way, just very briefly for the listeners, the language we are using right now to describe the parenting functions, roles, rights, and responsibilities in family law is about to change for some cases because we are about to 
enact, the government is about to enact uh, fairly sweeping amendments, changes to the Divorce Act, and the provinces will follow soon thereafter, and some already have. So back to the point, let's demystify the issue of entitlement to information. I know you and I can, and I think it's important to do so. It would also be terrific, Melanie, if you could touch on children over 18. They are often the subject of questions in this area, and also children who are disabled. Yes. Uh, Absolutely. And I agree, this is uh, a common question that arises with our clients. Notwithstanding what parent, say, has final decision making or decision making, the other parent is entitled to information unless they've specifically agreed otherwise or it's been court ordered otherwise. The Education Act is clear that the pupil and his or her parent or guardian, where the pupil is a minor, are entitled to examine the records of that pupil. And just for your listeners, I'm sure they know if they have a child in our public education system in Ontario, every student in Ontario has an Ontario school record, their OSR. And that can be examined by the the child, the student, or or the parent at any time in in the school, and requests can be made of the parent or the student to obtain copies of it. Um, And it's not just limited to report cards. For example, if uh, psychoeducational assessments have been completed for this child, it will be in the child's student record. Any other uh, documents or assessments, reports, anything from other professionals who may have supported the child, for example, a speech and language pathologist of the board or an occupational therapist or even private providers. If uh, the child or the parent have provided those reports to the school and they're contained in the record. Uh, So sometimes where it's important, though, to be mindful here and to answer, I hope your your comment about a child over the age of 18, um, because a parent who doesn't have decision making uh, or and who may not have an intact relationship with a child may want to get information about their child by going around the child and the other parent directly to the school. And it's very clear under the, in privacy legislation and under the Education Act, once a child is 18 or over, they have to consent to release their records. Uh, so a, a parent can't do a runaround, so to speak, um, and that child over 18 or 18 or over is, is consenting to the school, and the school will not release it. And just to another uh, point we talked about regarding uh, compulsory, compulsory schooling, it, it is from age 6 to 18 mandated under the Education Act, but students are permitted to stay in until age 21. So it's not actually an uncommon uh, request, quite frankly, or an uncommon scenario where a child is 18 or over and still uh, potentially in post-secondary, right? They're, uh, and they can stay until age 21. So I do see this quite a bit, quite frankly, uh, and, and it's an important consideration to be given in terms of, of the access. However, to just to go back to sort of 
the more broader picture here in terms of, of access uh, to school records or attending functions, attending um, parent-teacher interviews and so forth, right? The, the non-decision-making parent still has the right to do that sort of thing, for example. Um, and maybe I'm jumping ahead uh, in terms of um, school meetings or, or parent-teacher interviews. So I don't know if you have a particular question about that. No, I, I think that's great. I'm I'm so glad you segued into that because that was what I was going to propose we tackle next. So I, I take it what you're saying is that along with the right to information about the child come other rights. Like for example, are you does that include attending parent teacher meetings, for example, and attending uh, recitals, for example, and award ceremonies and so on. Comment on that for the listeners, please. Yes, that's what I was referring to uh, in terms of um, other school functions or, or events. Um, and and it's where, again, it's within the discretion of the family and maybe the, the family lawyer. But um, I, I do think it can be helpful uh, and it should be made known to the, the school administration, the principal or the teacher about a separation and uh, who does have decision making, um, because, of course, they will want to know who they should be communicating with. And if, for example, um, the parents have have shared decision making for their child, the school can take steps like ensuring you know, communication does go to both parents. So you're not relying on one parent to pass the information to the other about notices of school assemblies, recitals, concerts, when parent-teacher interviews are. They can even send home two sets of report cards, for example. I'm, I'm jumping back a bit to the access to records piece. But um, just in terms of the, the notice requirement that schools can give to parents who who are separated or divorced, um, uh, to ensure that there is involvement and input from both parents in the, the child's day-to-day schooling. I'm sure both you and I include a clause in our separation agreements, Melanie, that talks specifically about this issue, uh, that the parents will authorize uh, the school to provide to each of them independently uh, information about the child or children where that is at all possible. And of course, we want to do that particularly in cases where parents don't get along uh, really well, at least at the beginning. So that takes a step out of their communicating with each other about these issues, and no one feels aggrieved that they didn't hear about a concert or a recital. Children with special education needs are of particular interest to me, and of course they are to you. And once again, uh, Thank you for sharing your personal story with us. Uh, Many of our clients have exceptional kids and encounter some very unique challenges post-separation, sometimes because they don't see eye to eye on how to approach treatment, for example. Sometimes they can't even agree on the diagnosis. I know my listeners would be interested in hearing you address some specific issues related to children with special educational needs and how some of these challenges can be preempted, avoided by addressing them ahead of time in a separation agreement, for example. 
Absolutely. And again, of course, it comes back to what you're already doing and what I uh, highly recommend uh, on the initial first meetings with your client or consultation and intake, getting to know your client's child and what their needs are um, so that you have this information in advance. School, I, I like to, I'd like to talk a bit about school meetings in this context when I answer this question because um, meetings tend to occur more frequently and there are prescribed meetings under the Education Act and regulations specifically for students receiving special education. So I'm talking particularly about the identification, placement, review committee meetings, uh, school-based support team meetings, other case conferences, and then of course not a meeting, but what flows from all of those is the individual education plan or an IEP for students. So to the extent that you can put into a separation agreement or have uh, um, put into a court order, the, uh, the nuances around these types of meetings, particularly for parents who do not agree, uh, it will be helpful, I, I think, um, especially for parents who are not aligned at first instance on what their child's disability is or or to the extent that it it how the disability impacts their child's skills and and their needs and the focus from the school administration's perspective is always what are the child's strengths and what are their needs and and that needs to be identified first and foremost um, here and so for and that will be at the IPRC. That's the Identification Placement Review Committee meeting I mentioned. That's right on the form. And so to the extent you don't have parents who agree, and you can tackle that in advance as to who is going to be attending, are both or only one parent allowed to provide input to the school staff in advance, who's going to sign that form um, on behalf of the student if the child's under 16? Uh, now they're happening, these meetings happen by Zoom. So as school staff needs to provide a Zoom link to both parents uh, and so forth, um, you're not wanting to rely on one parent to give the other parent the information if they don't get along. So all of those things uh, need to be considered. And and again, this is where if if you're a family law lawyer without this information about what the special education system looks like, just ask, right, or do some digging or, or consult with someone who does, because uh, these could be very important uh, meetings and decisions for that particular family and child. From an education perspective, the IPRC is huge, and that needs to be done right. There are procedural um, parameters around it, and it's very, very important uh, for a child getting special education. So to the extent family lawyers can educate themselves about that and help their clients, I would say, please do so. It's, it's important for that child who's getting special education. We also have situations, I'm sure you've encountered this as well, where we're doing separation agreements for parents who are getting along relatively well. And sometimes they say to me, why do we need such detailed provisions relating to my child's special needs? We are getting along. And I always say to them, that's terrific. And I hope it continues. But this roadmap is here for the rainy day. 
if for some reason you have a difference of approach down the road, you don't want to slow down steps that are required to address your child's special needs. So why don't we put this roadmap in here and hopefully you'll never have to use it. I'm sure you've encountered similar situations as a family law lawyer, Melanie. Am I right about that? Absolutely. And and my approach is the same to the extent if you are getting along wonderfully. Um, but as we know, as parents of, of, quote, typical children, things change all the time and things come up. As a parent of a child with, with special needs, things can change more readily and uh, frequently. And so, yes, to have, I love how you call it, the roadmap for the rainy day. Uh, absolutely. To the extent that you can do so, it's helpful for the child. So I would like us to zoom out a bit again as we're approaching the end of this part of our interview. So Melanie, imagine you encounter a hypothetically recently separated couple with kids. My listeners know I love hypotheticals. So they're getting along reasonably well at the moment, and they express to you that they would like this cooperation to continue. So just like the example we discussed in the last few minutes, they tell you that they are planning on doing their best to work together to parent their kids. And they are wondering how to approach this. What overall tips you have for them to maximize their chances of success when it comes to the kids' schooling going forward? So I would say, and this frankly applies to not just parents uh, who are separated or divorced and and trying to co-parent, but an intact family as well. I, in my education, advocacy, and work, always find a collaborative approach with the school works best to the extent it's possible. Of course, in some instances, uh, you will have reluctant school staff engaging, but I would say on balance, um, principals and teachers are there because they really do care about educating your child. And they, if, if, for example, they have identified a need in your child that you didn't identify, or you're reluctant to hear, try to hear them out and listen to their perspective. I see this quite often, for example, where parents don't want to acknowledge that their child, for example, may have a, a special uh, a learning disability or wh- whatever it is, right? Um, do what you can to work collaboratively with the school staff. I have also very sadly seen where parents are too adversarial uh, aggressive with staff, demanding of, of their time without consideration of, of the other things that the staff have to do. And sadly, it sometimes gets taken out on the child. Everyone's human. And we, you know, I don't think it's direct or intentional, um, but it, it does happen. And that's the last thing I think parents want and staff, school staff want. Um, so uh, I would say, yes, collaboration is best. And it's not to say you can't advocate for your child, but you can advocate for your child in a in a respectful way, in a way that is solution focused, right, you can identify these are the, the things that are working well. And this is where we need to improve on. And then the school I would hope would be 
more willing to work on the improvements with you because they know that you're in it together with them. School board administration is hard. It's a hard job. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying that they they don't um, get it wrong a lot of the times. And I think there's education on both parts, frankly, that, that needs to happen. Setting aside the education context, conflict is toxic to children. It's toxic to children. So parents who get along, try to get along after separation, are doing the right thing for their kids. It's not a contest between parents. Everything has to be child-focused. And sometimes it's hard to think that way when you feel betrayed or disappointed or suspicious. But think about your child or children and put them ahead of your anger at your ex. And that will serve your children well. Absolutely. And I, I also like to, to the extent parents cannot present to school staff, even though they are separated or, or divorced, a unified or an aligned front, I think is stronger and more helpful. You avoid any type of divide and conquer type of situation where the the alignment is still the parents and, and the school to, to that extent, because um, uh, and the parents, if they disagree, they can have that discussion offline, right? I don't think it needs to be brought to a school meeting, for example, or school staff does not need to, to get in the middle of that. That would be my other thing I would suggest to parents for sure. Stay aligned, at least optically, uh, to school staff. These are all very, very helpful comments. You are clearly someone who is not only knowledgeable about these two areas, Melanie, but also very passionate about them. It, it comes through. I can hear it, and I'm sure my listeners can too. So now we're going to talk about food. And if you are listening to this podcast for the first time, you may find that a little odd. But if you've heard previous interviews, you know I always do this. I am a big fan of Alan Alda's podcast, Clear and Vivid. It's one of my favorite podcasts out there. And Alan has a fabulous device at the end of his interviews. He asks seven questions. I'm not going to ask seven. I'm going to ask three. And they are always about food. So Melanie, are you ready? I think so. Yes. <laughs> so what is what is your favorite food or cuisine? Uh, it, I think it falls under cuisine, Italian, by far. And why, why, you said by far, that's very interesting. What makes it so special for you? Well, I, I mean, my father's second generation Italian, and I grew up with a very close, tight-knit family, very close with my paternal grandparents who immigrated here from Italy. And so we grew up with the food. And I, I guess there's that nostalgic piece. Um, I've been to different parts of Italy many times, and I just, I can't get enough of it. Not that I should eat it all, but all parts of it. Yes, but runners... Runners don't have to worry about that. Do they? <laughs> That's what I tell myself. Harder when you're in your 40s. But. 
uh, you are uh, way behind me uh, in the age category. Uh, Melanie, uh, share with my listeners some recommendations and specifically your favorite restaurant anywhere in the world, please. In the world. Oh, goodness. I should have given this part more thought to the world, although that's probably because I can't remember the names of the restaurants in Italy that I have actually been to. Um, I can say in Toronto, Ascari and Oteca, they're the one talking about the location in Leslieville. I think they have others now. I love it. Just it's my it is my favorite Italian restaurant here by far. I am a fan of Italian food as well, but I must admit not as much as I am a fan of Asian food, and my listeners already know that. But uh, my husband, I must say, makes a pretty mean pasta sauce. I mean, the classic tomato mm-hmm. pasta sauce. I should, I should send you some at some point in a jar, and you can rate it on a scale of one to ten, and I'll <laughs> report report back to my husband. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I'll send it to my mom. I think she would probably be the best uh, taste tester there, but that sounds good. Although Asian was a, second on my list. Asian for sure is second. I interviewed a lawyer of Irish descent, in fact, a first generation immigrant, and I asked her this question about a favorite restaurant, and she said, My mother's kitchen, of course. She's working, <laughs> no doubt. Uh, so I thought that was that was sweet. I very much appreciate your joining me today. The information you have provided is very, very hands-on and valuable information and so current too. I mean, you've touched on the pandemic and some of the pressures involved with, with schooling these days and the the online aspect and the in-person aspect, also in the context Uh, of dealing with children with special needs. So I appreciate all this very much. And please come back. I'd love to have you again. We can think of some topics the listeners might be interested in. And it was a real pleasure, Melanie. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. I would love to come back. Thank you for having me. Terrific. Then we'll speak again. Okay. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.